Hello and welcome to Solutions, our second podcast for solution-focused hypnotherapists. I'm Cathy Eland. And I'm Trevor Eddles, and we're both experienced solution-focused hypnotherapists. We thought this time we'd look at pain and how solution-focused hypnotherapy can help. But before we start, I did want to say a word or two in defence of pain. Pain can be useful. If my finger's burning because the oven's hot, or if my foot's bleeding because I've stepped on something sharp, I need a signal that will override everything else I'm doing and get me to move my finger away from the heat or lift my foot away from the sharp object. But I'd also like to add a warning. Uh, A hypnotherapist shouldn't start sessions to modulate pain or mask a client's feelings of pain because the pain could very well be indicative of something being wrong medically. A diagnosis from a doctor should be obtained first. Yes, good advice. So, So tell us about pain, Kathy. I would love to. Firstly, there are two types. There's acute pain, which lasts for a short period of time, and there's chronic pain, which lasts a long time. Now, you're probably wondering just how long is a short time? And after how many days does it become a long period of time? But the jury is out on that one. There are other ways of categorising pain, aren't there, Trevor? Yes, we can divide pain into four types. Now, are you ready for this? I certainly am ready. Okay. Right, you've got nociceptive pain. This is caused by peripheral nerve fibres responding to stimuli approaching or exceeding harmful intensity. It could be something that's too hot or crushing or like a chemical in a cup. Then you've got neuropathic pain. This results from damage or disease affecting parts of the nervous system involved in bodily feelings. You get feelings like burning or tingling or pins and needles. Then there's phantom pain. And this appears to come from a part of the body that's been lost or from which the brain no longer receives signals. And number four then is psychogenic pain. And this is caused by increased or prolonged by mental, emotional or behavioural factors, e.g. headache, back pain and stomach ache. Wow. Of course, there's some people who feel no pain at all. And that's called pain asymbolia. Interestingly, pain is registered in the anterior cingulate gyrus of the brain, part of the limbic system, or primitive brain as we know it. Okay, so tell us how pain works. When a person feels pain, a message is sent from a nociceptor along a nerve fibre to the spinal cord. Jargon alert! A nociceptor is simply the name for a pain receptor. They signal nerve damage or damage to tissue. And if you're really interested... There are three types of pain receptors. You've got cutaneous, obviously in the skin, somatic, associated with joints and bones, and visceral, which is bodily organs. Uh, Sorry, carry on. Trevor, I was just getting going. Anyway, let's imagine a pain message has just reached the spinal cord and a response, a reflex-like knee-jerk reflex, may be sent to muscles telling them to move. So by the time you've realised your finger's burning or you've stepped on a pin, you've already begun to move away from the danger and the pain should be reducing. The area of the spinal cord that started the reflex is called the dorsal horn and it can also direct impulses to the brain. Now this is where Melzek and Wall's 1965 gait control theory comes in. The spinal cord's dorsal horn has transmission cells that carry the pain signal up to the brain and inhibitory interneurons that impede transmission cell activity. It seems the more touch or pressure or vibration messages reach the dorsal horn, the less likely a pain message is to reach the brain. 
And that's why when you rub the painful area, it really does seem to lessen the pain that you feel. Now, it's worth noting that in times of anxiety or stress, descending messages from the brain can amplify the pain message at the nerve gate. To get acute messages to the brain quickly, they travel along what's called A-delta fibers in the spinal column. And the chronic messages travel along slower C-fibers. The pain signal eventually reaches the thalamus. To be useful, this pain signal has to get a response from the brain. Now, remember that between 2 to 12 million sensory messages are estimated to arrive at the thalamus every second, a busy part. But most people delete almost all of those messages. We've all done that with pain messages. I mean, how many times has the film ended before you've realized that your foot has gone to sleep and is now causing you some serious pain? It is believed it is the part of the cortex that identifies the source of the pain and compares it to pain templates. But the primitive brain can also add an emotional element to the pain. It could add on information about past experiences. It can suggest behaviors based on expectations. On bad days, you can end up in the floor in tears with the pain. Whereas on good days, you can just carry on, ignore the pain. It all depends. Isn't it true that the hypothalamus and the pituitary gland can produce endorphins, which are like natural morphine in the way they produce analgesia and reduce pain? Absolutely true. They are the body's own androgynous opiates or painkillers. And this is why injured soldiers during combat feel no pain until they are then safe. Now, can we come back to this, Trevor, because I think it's quite useful to know about these processes. So going back to the pain gate just for a moment, there are a number of things that can open the pain gates. These include injury or inactivity being the sensory factors, focusing on the pain or negative thoughts, the cognitive factors. And the emotional factors are feelings of being depressed or being stressed or feeling that sense of helplessness. Now, the things that close the gates are relaxation, as we know, and meditation, which are sensory. The cognitive aspects are focusing on outside interests. And the emotional aspect is, is having that positive mental attitude. Oh, fascinating stuff. I'm told that uh, the A-fibre axons are myelinated, which is why messages travel quickly. And C-fibre axons are unmyelinated, so conduct messages more slowly. You're right, Trevor. You can just imagine, you know, the pain message speedily bouncing between the myelin sheaths of the A-fibres at a speed of between 35 and 100 metres per second. And the message dawdling along the C-fibres at about 0.5 to 2 metres per second. This, in fact, is called saltatory conduction to give you its proper name. So, sorry, carry on, Trevor. Okay, so that explains why pain comes in two phases. The first phase uses A-fibres and feels like sharp pain, and the second phase uses C-fibres and is more prolonged but less intense. And just talking of ignoring pain, which we were, there's the story about Bert Troutman, who played in goal for Manchester City in the 1956 FA Cup final. Now, the thing is, he played the last 17 minutes of the match, which, by the way, his team won 3-1, with a broken neck. Wow. Anyway, in addition to the feelings of pain, there's an emotional or a suffering component to the experience. This can be explained by linking pain to memory. Adding an emotional component to a sensory experience is a great enhancer of memory. People are able to remember a single painful experience. And so 
for example, they never touch that hot object again. And the second advantage of associating pain with emotion in social animals is empathy. Having experienced pain yourself, you're more likely to feel empathy for other family members who are in pain. If they're injured, then you'll offer help to them. And if you're injured, hopefully they'll offer help to you. So some people still feel pain long after the nociceptors have stopped sending pain messages. And that's chronic pain, like we said. And with this, the ongoing pain signals no longer serve a useful purpose, even if they still hurt. So over time, these signals can lead to depression, anxiety, and stress. And for people like this, solution-focused hypnotherapy can really help. Anyway, a question for you. What's the pain wind-up idea that I've heard about? Right. Well, it seems that persistent activation of nociceptors and transmission at the dorsal horn of the spinal cord may induce this wind-up phenomenon. Pain wind-up is an increase in intensity over time when a given stimulus is delivered repeatedly above a critical rate. It is caused by repeated stimulation of C nerve fibres. This leads to a progressive increase in electrical responses in the neurons of the posterior horn of the spinal column, increasing the firing of the WDR neurons, and that means the threshold for pain signals to be transmitted is lowered. Sorry, WDR, uh, just that just stands for wide dynamic range. I also want to mention that acute pain sends signals to 16 parts of the brain in order to process the pain signal. That's what creates the perception of pain. And with acute pain in particular, once the danger is over, the pain creates a counter signal that dampens the pain. Yeah, I mean, you see rugby players get knocked down and get straight up, or soldiers on the battlefield somehow control their pain until they're somewhere safe. How do they do that? This is really interesting. So let's say we've got an aching knee or a bad back pain, and the message travels on the C fibres from the specific area to our spinal cord and into the dorsal horn, and it's then transmitted across the spinal column and up to the thalamus, and that produces the pain sensation and to the sensory lobe so that we can localize the pain. So we know that it's our knee that's hurting. This message is transmitted like a relay race where the message begins at the starting blocks, that's the knee, and then into the dorsal horn where the message is passed on to another relay runner that takes it across and up to the brain. Now, in a relay race, if the runner drops the baton, the race is over. The team doesn't finish. And this is exactly how neurotransmitters like serotonin, endorphins and encephalins have the ability to stop the race or stop the pain message reaching the brain. As the baton is passed in the dorsal horn, the serotonin molecule trips up, gets in the way of the runner and stops the baton being passed. And this is called the descending analgesic pathway. What about research into hypnosis and pain? What did you find? There is actually plenty of research showing how beneficial hypnosis can be. Keel et al. in 2018 found that pain was significantly reduced by hypnosis. Van Hordenhaus et al. in 2015 tried four different treatments for chronic pain. The most significant results for pain reduction in intensity were found in the hypnosis group. Birdhart in 2018 did a meta-analysis of hypnosis in a range of dental procedures, which revealed that hypnosis was the most effective way for reducing mental distress, pain relief, and the use of analgesics. I've got one more. 
a review in 2012 by Tommy Perez and Miro on self-hypnosis for pain control in children with cancer found it extremely effective as a pain management technique. Trevor, what about you? What research did you find? Right, I've got some. Uh, Spiegel et al. 2009 studied breast cancer patients whose treatment included hypnosis. They found that the hypno-receiving patients had significantly less pain. Similarly, a study by Elkins et al. in 2004 of advanced stage cancer patients with malignant bone disease found hypnosis decreased their pain. A study of hypnosis for pain relief following chemotherapy by Siriala et al. 2009 found patients showed a significant reduction in oral pain. A study of patients undergoing excisional breast biopsy or lumpectomy by Montgomery et al. in 2007 found that patients who had hypnosis showed a significant reduction in pain intensity, self-reported pain unpleasantness, nausea, fatigue and discomfort. Similarly, a study of patients undergoing large core breast biopsy by Lang et al. in 2006 found hypnotic relaxation treatment reduced pain and anxiety. A study involving procedural related pain in pediatric oncology by Richardson et al. 2006 found clinical hypnosis for pain management helped to reduce the children's pain and distress. But you were telling me earlier about putting people's hands in hot and cold water. What was that? Well, it just sounds plain mean to me. However, in 2014, Kramer et al. wondered whether it was just relaxation or a different mindset that enabled a person to tolerate pain. The poor participants in this experiment had their hands plunged in icy cold water, followed by a dip in very hot water. After this mean event, some received hypnosis to cope with their rather unfortunate experience. Some received relaxation and some received nothing. The group who had a hypnosis were able to cope with the hot and cold water for longer. The relaxation group produced no change in their pain tests. And the conclusion was that hypnosis was affecting the pain perception. It wasn't the relaxation. But I suppose some people might argue they were just being distracted. I suppose that's a good point. So in 2018, Squintani et al. tested whether distraction was the mechanism. The participants in this study were all living in chronic pain. They were given tests in a resting state during hypnosis and during a period of distraction. And researchers found that the area of the brain involved in pain perception showed a significant decrease in activity during the hypnosis condition compared to the other two groups. You can make their conclusion as they did, Trevor. But here's a question for you. What is the neurological impact of hypnosis? Can you tell us more about that? Of course. As early as 1994, research by Larbig et al. showed that coping with increasing pain was associated with an increase in brain theta wave activity. The research found that raised theta activity was associated with better pain control strategies and pain perception. We know that for most people, the trance state is rich in theta waves, helping our clients improve their processing of painful stimuli. So how about this? How about the idea of a person who is open to try new experiences like hypnotherapy? Would that help a person cope with pain? So does a person's hypnotizability have an impact, perhaps? Yeah, it would seem so. There's a study by Santark Angelo in 2013 that suggested people with an interest in novel experiences, psychological well-being and hypnotizability were better able to produce visual images during trance which meant the person was more able to control pain during hypnosis. 
In our SF therapy, we ask our clients every week to imagine positive steps and encourage them to think more positively about their mental wellness. But Kathy, how would that work? Yes. Okay. I'll explain. The biological mechanism by which it appears to work was researched by Goodin et al. in 2012, K-Cuts in 2016, and Vedanza in 2017. Hypnosis appears to positively affect the HPA axis through its action on the amygdala, telling the brain that there is a fight and flight situation, which activates the parasympathetic nervous system, reducing skin conduction. But interestingly, not cortisol or heart rate. So hypnosis is a good way for people to experience less pain. It is. We have many hypnotherapy techniques that can be used to alleviate pain. Let's explore. We have direct suggestion. We can replace the word pain with discomfort. We can use glove anesthesia. We can visualize the area of pain as being smaller. We can alter the qualitative aspects of pain and associate it with coolness or warmness or numbness. We can reduce anticipatory anxiety. We can focus on something else. We can use dissociation or we can use a fascinating technique called hypnoesitherapy. I don't know what that last one is. What is it? Well, it's a technique developed by a Spanish physician called Dr. Angelo Escudaro, and he called it easy therapy. His patients underwent surgical procedures whilst awake. Yes, whilst awake. In fact, if you have a look at a YouTube channel of his sister having brutal tibial surgery with a smile on her face. We have adapted this technique with the addition of hypnosis, and it is rather an unusual process, and it involves the presence of saliva in the mouth during trance. I've used it many times with quite amazing results. Wow, wow, wow. I, I didn't know that sort of thing had a name. Anyway, um, that's a great list you've read out first, and I've got Milton Erickson's list of 11 methods of dealing with pain using hypnosis. They are directly suggesting that the pain will disappear, indirectly suggesting that pain will disappear, creating amnesia for past experiences of pain, creating numbness or analgesia in the painful area of the body, creating a more total anesthesia by having the person imagine they are somewhere far from the pain, altering sensations of pain into sensations of itching, warmth, coolness, or other less disturbing sensations displacing the pain to a more manageable area of the body, e.g. moving abdominal pain to the hand. Dissociation, e.g. having the person imagine that they are across the room observing themselves. Reinterpreting the pain as a feeling of heaviness, pulsation or movement. Distorting time perception so that a prolonged period of pain seems to go by much faster, suggesting that the pain will reduce itself very gradually so gradually that the person cannot even monitor whether or not this is happening. That is a very similar list, isn't it? So let's talk about the techniques we use with pain. Perhaps the most obvious technique, and because it's the most important one, is to reduce the client's anxiety and help them relax. A relaxed person feels less pain than a tense one. And we have plenty of visualisation scripts that can help with this. We can also use self-esteem boosting scripts to help the client feel more in control of their pain. What do you do, Trevor? Yeah, I like to get a base level SUD, subjective unit of distress of how bad a client's pain typically is. I also get them to confirm that they want to get rid of the pain now. 
remember there can be a huge secondary gain associated with illness. And some people are a bit like smokers. They know they ought to give up, but not today. So once they've confirmed that they want to reduce their pain and we can agree on goals, we can start work. And giving a client an understanding of how nerves and pain works gives them a better understanding of what's going on and what they need to do to help themselves. Classic cognitive restructuring. And I think a client who experiences pain will certainly be aware that sometimes they can seem to forget about the pain. And there's other times when the pain ramps up. And we can ask them if this happens. Maybe it's when they are immersed in a classic episode of Only Fools and Horses or when they receive an unexpected delivery of spring flowers. It's worth reminding them that their brain can naturally choose to ignore that redundant pain signal. And during the talking part of the session, it could be worth examining the client's expectations of pain. Ask how they think others see them and how they would like to be seen. And ask how they think pain will affect them in the future and how they would like their future to be. It's always a good idea to have a strong, positive goal. You can also help them with changing their behaviour by talking about how they would like to behave when the next bout of pain occurs. And this kind of reframe can be included in the trance session. Uh, Depending on how severe the pain is, it might even be useful to avoid using the word pain. Call it something else. A different word loses a lot of the emotional baggage. You could call it discomfort, for example. A discomfort doesn't feel anywhere near as bad as pain, does it? Or you can get a client to act as if they don't have any pain. I suppose they may imagine that in the miracle question. Obviously, this doesn't work if the pain is useful. They really do have a broken leg. They don't want to be riding around the countryside on the racing bike or paddleboarding across Lake Coniston. But it can be good if they have chronic pain and that the cause is no longer present and nothing can be done to relieve it. You would expect the brain to affect the way a person behaves, but perhaps counterintuitively, the way the body behaves can affect the way the brain works. That's why encouraging people with depression to look up as they walk along can help reduce the feelings of depression. So encouraging your client to act as if they didn't have pain should result in them feeling less pain and consequently reduce their thoughts about pain. Sounds good, doesn't it? Yeah, that's brilliant. I've got an NLP technique that I use for headaches and similar localised pain, where I say to the client, if your pain had a colour, what colour would it be? And then ask, if your pain had a shape, what shape would it be? You can then ask uh, what colour the background would be. Is it matte or gloss? Are the edges fuzzy or sharp? What sounds can you hear? You get the idea. And then ask them to make the shape larger, and that makes the pain increase. Then ask them to make the shape smaller and get the colour to change until it's more like the background colour. And their pain should also decrease. And you can even get them to picture something washing away all the colours and shapes, leaving them completely pain-free. That sounds brilliant. And in terms of trance, you might use the pain control room idea and get them to turn up the dial and feel more pain, and then turn down the dial and feel less pain all the time reinforcing the idea that the client has the ability to control the amount of pain they feel. Yeah, that's good. And there's also the um, hand-numbing glove anesthesia script, which not only allows the client to feel their hand going numb, but also then to transfer that numbness to a different part of the body. And this works nicely for a painful knee, as well as something like uh, IBS, irritable bowel syndrome. This is an example of dissociation. 
And it's also possible to dissociate from a painful part of the body. So your client feels as if the knee or arm or whatever just doesn't belong to them, meaning the pain cannot belong to them. And so they cannot be feeling any pain. That's brilliant. And you might also use the anchoring technique to help people to feel relaxed and in control. So whenever they start to feel anxious or they start to feel the pain beginning, they can use their anchor to remain in control and reduce the pain sensations. Yeah, I know. I like that one. I also use the protective shield script, which gives the client a sort of force field around their body that they can use for protection. It shields them from pain and or unpleasant things. I also found a wash away pain script, but I've not actually used that one yet. Well, I'd be interested in that one too, Trevor. And another visualising technique is to get the client to move the pain. This is called pain displacement or pain transference. The client needs to picture the pain moving to a less significant part of the body, like the little finger or an earlobe. And there it can be modified or reduced. Yeah, similarly, you can get clients to construct a happy place in their mind. This can be whatever they want it to be. And they can visit their happy place and feel relaxed while being there. And they can focus on the details of it. That's the displacement activity. And all the time, they're ignoring the pain. I suppose in much the same way, you can use time dissociation to take the client back to a a pleasant time when they were healthy and pain-free. You can let the client relive a happy, pain-free memory. The thing is that through relaxation, we're getting them back into their control brain, the logical Mr. Spock part of the brain and out of their primitive emotional brain. You're changing their behavior and the way they picture themselves and their pain. And you're changing the emotional baggage associated with feeling pain. You are giving them control over their illness and over their life, which has got to be a good thing for them. Oh, absolutely. Trevor, I've just realised that last time we mentioned Sherlock Holmes, and now we've just mentioned Mr. Spock. Uh, who's starring next week, Trevor? Ah, well, we'll just have to see next time. Anyway, that's about it for this podcast. I hope you found it useful. Solution-focused hypnotherapy can certainly help people with pain. So it's goodbye from me, Trevor Ebbles. And it's goodbye from me, Cathy Eland. So we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye.